This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is the 2019 Verso Radical Diary and Weekly Planner, a stylish diary filled with radical historical dates from across the world. The 2019 Verso Radical Diary is a beautifully designed week-to-view planner where you can keep track of the year ahead. Alongside illustrations and book excerpts, it features significant radical dates from throughout history, including the English Civil War and Black Panther movement, through to the protests of 1968 and feminist emancipation, touching on the lives of revolutionaries such as Angela Davis, Rosa Luxemburg, and Martin Luther King Jr. The 2019 edition includes illustrations from Savage Messiah, Laura Oldfield Ford's brilliant psychogeographic graphic novel, as well as extracts from brand new Verso books, including Revolting Prostitutes, New Dark Age, and Paradise Rot. The 2019 Verso Radical Diary and Weekly Planner, out now from none other than Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. On Saturday, I was in New York to interview Fernando Hadaji and Yanis Varoufakis. Hadaji is the former Workers' Party, or PT, mayor of Sao Paulo, who recently lost Brazil's presidential election to far-right candidate Jair Bolsonaro. Varoufakis was the Greek finance minister who tried and failed to fight the Troika's imposition of austerity and who today is a leader of the Democracy in Europe Movement 2025. Unsurprisingly, our topic was the fight against right-wing populism. In Brazil, the left has suffered a historic defeat after economic crisis shattered the PT's pact with national elites. Where to go now? with Lula imprisoned and the party distanced from its popular base, is an unsettled and unsettling question. Bolsonaro is an unrepentant cheerleader for Brazil's military dictatorship and threatens to unleash a combination of state and vigilante violence and repression blessed by powerful evangelical leaders, all to facilitate a reactionary agenda that will harm not only Brazil's most vulnerable, but also the entire planet given his inclination to destroy the Amazon. In Europe, the powers that be crushed the possibilities of a left alternative. As a result, that very same establishment has unleashed a right-wing populism that has taken power or threatens to do so across the EU. The upshot is that the left is engaged in a huge debate over what to do about Europe, with Varoufakis arguing that the disintegration of the EU and Eurozone on right-wing terms would be a political, social, and economic disaster and his critics responding that the EU and Eurozone are already and inevitably just that. Okay, before we get rolling, if you find this podcast useful in making sense of the world in order to change it, please support us at patreon.com slash the dig. $5 a month gets you access to our newsletter. $10 and we'll mail you a copy of either Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity or Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism. $20 or more a month, and we'll send you a bunch of great left-wing books. This podcast can only exist thanks to listener support. Support from people like you, 
listening to me right now in your earbuds. So, if you are a dedicated listener who hasn't contributed yet, please take a quick moment to do so now at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Thank you. And here's Fernando Hadaji and Giannis Varoufakis, followed by a question and answer session with the audience. Fernando Hadaji and Giannis Varoufakis, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for the opportunity. Before we get into the origins of today's right-wing populace, I want to ask each of you about what is happening right now in Europe. We have right populists either in power or threatening to take power in various countries. In Brazil, we have just this incredibly vile, brutally violent, homophobic, sexist, unrepentant apologist for the military dictatorship about to take office. In the U.S., we all know what's going on here. My question is, what is the magnitude of the danger and what are the biggest threats in the short and long term? Well, thank you for the wonderful introduction and the instructions, uh, which I am going to follow. I'm going to hold you to it. Uh, before I, I answer the question, I need to thank these two venerable institutions. Uh, the New School, which proves that there is room for progressive social science education in this country, and Jacobin, that proves that it is possible to have printed magazines that maintain the rage against uh, a ridiculous world in, in which we live. Speaking of the ridiculous world in which we live, well, now I'm now going to ask, uh, answer your question. Uh, okay, look, let's keep it simple, because the more complicated it is, the simpler our narrative must be, uh, without being simplistic. 2008, in this great city, we had the uh, unfolding of our generation's 1929. Just like after 1929, a magnificent bubble of financialized capital burst. And very soon after that, uh, a hapless, clueless establishment. Remember Herbert Hoover in uh, this country, as well as uh, the Weimar Republic in Germany, uh, the heart of Europe? Uh, they struggled to shift very cynically the costs of their own crisis onto the shoulders of the weakest of citizens. What followed was deflationary economic forces, uh, a depression that was simultaneously economic and psychological, and nothing guarantees most, uh, more uh, powerfully the emergence of political monsters than a combination of a prior bubble, the bursting, the humiliation, and the transfer of the costs onto the shoulders of the weakest. So in exactly the same way that in the 1930s, that humiliation and the lack of uh, any prospect, as well as the failure of the left to organize and to remain united and to form sustainable coalitions with a broader um, network of uh, social and political forces, it contributed to strongmen, patriarchs, 
misogynists, racists, getting a soapbox, standing on it and turning to you and saying, I'm going to make you proud again. They, didn't they did not promise concentration camps and war. They promised to make us proud again, to put our countries first, to return dignity to us. In some occasions, to look after the working class. I'll remind you that it was Benito Mussolini who first introduced a universal pension system in Europe, actually in the world. The deal was, I'm going to provide minimum living conditions for the working class as long as trade unions are banned, democratic politics is suspended, and you become my army so that I can wage war against you and all the other peoples in the world. That's, uh, does this ring a bell? Is this not what is happening today? Bolsonaro, Trump, Steve Bannon is organizing all the fascistoids of, the, of Europe into one solid, powerful, nationalist international, which is a contradiction in term, but it is not in reality, because they know, the fascists know how to internationalize and cooperate, just like the bankers know. We of the left are the only ones who don't know how to do it. And this is why it, it was such a great pleasure yesterday with Bernie Sanders to inaugurate the Progressive International in Vermont. We'll talk more about it. But look, let me put it simply. We have a choice. Either we're going to fail like our grandparents did in the 1930s, to bring about the progressive coalition that knows how to transcend national borders as well as traditional divisions between political formations and parties. Either we're going to learn how not to repeat the, our grandparents' mistake, or we won't. This is the moment of truth. Tomorrow is another country, another continent. We have an opportunity. Our chances are not very good. We are losing everywhere. Let's be honest with one another. Huh? These are wonderful meetings. Like in Vermont yesterday, today here at the New School, this is a beautiful meeting. But let us not make the mistake that progressives usually make of falling in love with ourselves and our rhetoric and feeling very good about ourselves, so much so that we go home and nothing happens and tomorrow we are defeated again by the Trumps the Bolsonaros, the Netanyahu's, the Salvini's, the Kurtz's, the Zerhofer's, and so on and so forth. I've spoken enough. Thank you. Fernando. Uh, thank you for Jacobin and New School. Thank you, Varoufakis, for the opportunity to dialogue with you. I apologize for my, for, for my English. Uh, since 1989, I don't give a speech in English. I have a help here beside me. Um, if, if we uh, think the, about the 80s, uh, what, what was the condition of the left then? The Soviet Union collapsed. The uh, national development in the third world collapsed because of the debt. And the social democracy in the center, in the core of the system, also collapsed and gave place, uh, gave place all over the world to uh, neoliberalism from uh, Thatcher, from Reagan, and so on. One aspect of this movement was the deregulamentation of finance. And all the left knows uh then uh then that the this 
movement will uh, uh, ensure uh, will um, guarantee, guarantee a, a, a crisis, a financial crisis, because it was impossible to manage the economy in a Keynesian mode uh, with a de-regulamentation de of uh, the finance, the international finance. It's impossible. All those institutions uh, post-World War II uh, was not in place anymore. So it's, it was impossible to deal with the crisis if it occurs with the old, uh, in an old-fashioned way. So the left uh, knew a crisis will occur, but we don't deal with that uh, situation, with that scenario. We didn't work hard to offer an alternative when it comes. So when the, the bubble uh, burst, uh, we don't have an answer for that, how to do in, in that situation. And what we, said, uh, what we saw was the socialization of the losses. That's the point. That's the point Varoufak said right now. The socialization. Everybody in the world uh, is a socialist, in a sense. We want to socialize, uh, so socialize profit. They want to socialize losses. But everyone is a socialist. <laughs> so we, we have to offer an answer for that. And we didn't have an answer. So we are facing right now the political consequences of that, not having an answer for the crisis of 2008, in my opinion. And uh, it has a common base, has a common ground all over in Hungary, in Brazil, here in US. But it's different in a sense because the coalition in Brazil, the new coalition of social forces in Brazil, is different from here, and it's different from, for, uh, from Eastern Europe. We have to pay attention locally. We have to pay attention because the situation in Brazil is quite new for us. It's a coalition of neoliberalism with neo-fundamentalism provided by uh, the neo-pentecostalism in Brazil, the new church in Brazil, uh, which uh, grew a lot uh, in the same time PT uh, grew, at, at the same time, 30 years, uh, in the last 30 years. The military support, which is new in Brazil, because uh, since the constitution of 1988, we don't have any problem with the military sector. Uh, and an unprecedented alignment with the US agenda, Trump's agenda, which is also new because our diplomacy has nothing to do with 100% alignment with any, any country. So the environmental issue to give up to host uh, the, the climate change meeting next year, uh, the move uh, the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Uh, all this matter is, a, uh, is an alignment with Trump's administration. Has nothing to do with the tradition of our diplomacy. So we have to think locally 
and internationally to, to act and to see what's going on. There is a common ground, yes, but there are differences has to be noted in order to organize the internal forces to defeat this new wave. Um, as you said, we all face this common threat of the populist far right, but I want to ask about some of these local particularities. In Europe and the U.S., at the center of the ascendant right is anti-migrant politics and xenophobia. In Brazil, it seems like it's more law and order. And I wonder if you think that they serve similar social functions in terms of uh, the state being able to perform a strong security state in a way to compensate for a decimated social state. Uh, obviously, they're different situations because there's an actual security problem in Brazil, whereas the migrant crisis in Europe is actually a political crisis about migration. It takes different forms, but the causality is the same. Uh, let, let me put it this way. Deflation gives rise to um, fear of the other. Whoever the other might be, the other might be the Syrian, the Jew, the Greek, the German, uh, the gay, the transsexual, the, the, the left-handed as opposed to the right-handed. Uh, it really doesn't matter. Uh, what matters is that a society suddenly finds itself in a state of bewilderment. A society which for 30 years, whether it's the United States or Brazil or Greece, uh, that was bombarded with the liberal establishment populism, which said what? I mean, what is a populist? Somebody who offers, who promises all sorts of things to all sorts of people that are based effectively on nothing but hot air, uh, the purpose of which is to solidify a power structure. That's what populism is. That's why I don't believe in left-wing populism. It's a contradiction in terms. There can never be such a thing as left-wing popul left populism. It's only right-wing fascism that develops populist tendencies. And let not, let's not confuse popular with populist. Uh, so in, 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 in Brazil, the other that people fear is um, um, the one who's under porters, uh, the drug dealer, the, the mafioso, the, or the Venezuelan who is coming over to Brazil, so that becomes a foreigner. Um, in, in Greece, it's uh, the Nigerian, it is the Albanian, it is um, the slightly different uh, in uh, everywhere. But the, the point to make is this. There can be no logically coherent explanation of this fear of the other, which is separated from the deep failure of capitalism, of capital, to accumulate, to put it in old Marxist terms, to reproduce itself. Because it is not that suddenly Brazilians started fearing uh, crime more than they were two years ago. It is not that suddenly uh, the Austrians started fearing uh, people from, you know, Serbia. Uh, what, what is going on is really very, very simple. The moment you have uh, a collapse in aggregate demand, in economic terms, I mean, you school, I can say that. Uh, or to put it in more lay terms, the moment you have a diminution of good quality jobs and you have uh, whole communities that in order to survive, they have to just leave their homes, their villages, their towns and move either to London or to Berlin or to New York, then suddenly 
it becomes ever so easy for a demagogue to get up and say, it's this guy's fault. Look at this guy. This guy has a little bit of white here on, on, on the side. When you know, we, in our country, we don't usually have that. Yeah? And it, 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 in your country, you usually don't have hair at all. <laughs> well, no, they do. I don't. I'm the exception. Me and my dad have no hair. Um, so the, 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 the point is this. There is no sense in ever trying to separate the economic explanation from uh, the deep-seated tendency of humanity to move towards the side of uh, misanthropy the moment the narrative that was the myth that was uniting society collapsed. Why? Because the economics collapsed. So the two are one, and any attempt to tell a story which is either economic or based on identity, or based on culture, uh, separated from the economics, it produces both bad economics and bad cultural theory. It's just like that. Uh, yeah, it's just like that. In Brazil, uh, it, uh, if not a, a tragedy, it would be a joke. Because, for example, in Brazil, uh, I would implement a... a a bicycle lane structure in the city of Sao Paulo. I was a mayor, a former mayor of Sao Paulo. And people uh, start blaming PT of everything, PT, my, my party. And they started to, to, to call the cyclists as a communist and said them, go to Cuba. <laughs> yes, go to Cuba. Uh, a friend of mine uh, went vote with a T-shirt um, saluting the, the LGBT movement. And a guy said, you are a communist. Uh, and so on. Uh, for example, uh, teachers in Brazil are, are being accused of uh, uh, teach uh, cultural Marxism in, in the schools. In the schools. I'm sure not only 1% of teachers in Brazil know Ad knows Adorno. I'm sure about that. <laughs> but 100% of them are blaming to teach cultural Marxism in the schools, in the high schools, and even before. Uh, the district, district attorney of Belo Horizonte, one of the biggest cities in, in Brazil, uh, sue a very traditional private school because they adopt, in, in his sense, the ideology, ideology of gender for little kids. So it's, it's something amazing because it's difficult to fight back. It's, it's an it's a entire fake news. It's not one fake news. It's, it's a fake country, in a sense. Because we don't recognize uh, Brazil anymore. We don't see the country as we seen before. So, uh, and the, the, it's more psychological than anything else. And it has to do with economics, yes. Because when you so socialize the losses, you have to blame someone. And the left in Brazil, 
the left is an umbrella, a very big umbrella with everybody uh, under it, uh, cyclists, gays, lesbians. Uh, <laughs> no, yes, I'm, I'm telling you. <laughs> it would be funny, huh? but it's a tragedy. Uh, we are uh, having uh, problems in, in all uh, fronts. Uh, when you think uh, public transportation, when you think about uh, civil rights, when you think about social rights, uh, it's uh, everything altogether is being blamed by the crisis and by the situation of Brazil. So, uh, uh, myself, I consider me a Jew in Brazil right now. Because I, I feel like a Jew in the Germany of the 30s. That's the point. Um, I want to ask you both about the role played by the left in power in, in Brazil and in Greece and in Europe generally. Um, Fernando first, to, to what extent is the rise of the far right, did the PT play a role in that? And that it had a pact with the Brazilian elite that did deliver very concrete gains to working class and poor Brazilians, but it was a coalition that ultimately turned out to be inevitably provisional because when economic crisis hit, the elites turned against the PT. Um, was, was this coalition necessary given the totally backward structure of the Brazilian parliament and other constraints imposed by, by capitalism? Or do you think that there was a missed opportunity at some moment when the PT was at the height of its power that it could have deepened its uh, its support in its in its base and pushed through some sort of structural transformation? The left has never uh, more than twenty percent of the parliament in Brazil. Never. Among five hundred uh, deputies, we have a hundred, a hundred and fifty. No more than that. Uh, so a coalition is necessary to, to govern. Uh, but uh, I, I think uh, we paid too much attention on the results and less attention on the means to get those results. And that's why I think uh, the, the left doesn't have the right to not paying attention on the means. We have to transform society uh, uh, altogether. We have to look at the poor. Yes, we have to uh, open the, 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 the universities for black people. Yes, to empower uh, women. Yes, but the means is important and we, don't, we didn't pay attention on that. So the political reform was very necessary. And not in the first, but in the second um, term of Lula, we could even try to do that. Try to do that. So sometimes it's, it's uh, more important to try something different than to win an election, not to lose the, the trust of the com com community. That's my point. One comment regarding 
Brazil in particular and Latin America in general and then a more general response. Will you allow me um, a vulgar, determinist, reductionist point for one second? Without a doubt. Thank you. Okay, here's my take. The pink regimes in Latin America, the pink wave, uh, was a result of pent-up frustration by indigenous people, by working class, by trade unions, and so on, but it rode the tsunami of China. Chinese unprecedented growth provided your economies with tremendous growth. It was, uh, you know, the exponential increase in uh, uh, Latin American exports to China that created the macroeconomic circumstances for Lula, all the comrades, Bolivia and so on, um, Argentina, uh, effectively to uh, have the luxury, which is always very short term, never lasts for very long, of uh, taking a chunk, an amount of value, and using it in order to finance an increase in the income of the working class, which was fantastic. I'm not criticizing it. All I'm saying is that that was a bubble that was inevitable to burst. And it is not um, by accident that all the left-wing governments in Latin America collapsed simultaneously as the collapse in imports by China of Latin American exports. That was the reductionist point. But it is important to have this in mind because it reinforces Fernando's point that a left which only focuses on channeling, this is not to be sneezed at, but the problem is when you're channeling, when you're only focusing in the channeling of this, uh, if you want, windfall that comes from China, from Wall Street, from wherever it comes. Even Tony Blair was doing this by financing the National Health Service from what? From the proceeds of the um, uh, turbocharged financialization of the city of London. It doesn't matter where it's coming from. Uh, the left has always, in the last hundred years, made the catastrophic, colossal, colossal mistake of focusing on incomes. The smart folks, and this is the enemy, not us. We are the stupid ones. <laughs> they focus on wealth. You know, they don't give a damn about income. They care about wealth. You know, the multinationals seize assets from indigenous people, from, you know, the developing countries, from within your country through privatization, through the expropriation of resources. They grab wealth. And then they, in Congress, in Parliament, they allow us to have a discussion about peanuts, about incomes, and you know whether we're going to increase Medicare by 0.8% or 0.9%, while they are snatching trillions and trillions of wealth. And the, and, 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 and the, the left, because of our historic defeat due to the failure of the Soviet Union, let's be honest about this, okay, we have been cornered into not contesting capitalist property rights. This is, I think, Fernando's point. Huh? Property rights. It's what matters. Rights over the returns to wealth. Uh, when are we going to wake up and realize that a reformist gradualist process will always favor those who snatch wealth, who 
ensure that the only solution to the class conflict that results is taller and taller walls between countries, countries but also within our own cities, between gated communities and slums, and the destruction of the planet due to this uh, massive expropriation of effectively fossil fuel-directed wealth. Uh, if a progressive international is going to contribute anything to our progressive movements in Brazil, in the United States, in New York, in Rhodes Island, wherever it happens to be. Rhodes Island, where did I think of it? Uh, I don't know, I don't know. That's where I'm I jet-lagged. <laughs> you have to forgive me, right? Um, uh, in the great state of Vermont, where I was. Uh, if we're going to make a difference, it must be because we develop an international blueprint, an international Green New Deal for redistributing property rights over wealth and, and, and also uh, democratizing the decision of which wealth we leave under the surface of the earth and which we do not. Giannis, I asked uh, Fernando about the, the PT's shortcomings, and now I need to ask you about what, uh, what critics of what you're doing right now say and get your response. Cr your critics, if I, if I can summarize their criticism correctly, would say that your, your project to democratize Europe replicates mistakes that were made under when you were part of the Syriza government in Greece in that it attempts to fight to do something that's very good but impossible given the basic power relationships baked into the Eurozone. What's your response to your critics and how will your movement, Democracy in Europe Movement 2025, succeed where Syriza failed in Greece? Well, to, to begin with, if we give up on the vision, on the idea on the prospect of democratizing our world, we might as well commit suicide now and get it over and done with. Because uh, what else is there to do? Uh, the reason why the Russian Revolution took place was because of an urge to democratize uh, Tsarist Russia. Now, whether it failed or not, that's another matter, yeah? But that was what made people um, risk their lives in order to support the revolution. Uh, now. Let me be a little bit more specific regarding the criticisms. Uh, and I will be begin by giving the, the best shot at those critics of mine that you mentioned. I will side with them for a moment and then I will respond. Uh, their point, just to make it a bit more clear, is that um, the, um, the aspiration to reform the European Union in a manner which is consistent with uh, um, democracy and uh, with uh, a leftist project of reversing the neoliberal direction which was always baked into the European Union. It was hardwired into its DNA. That is nothing more than an illusion. That is the crit criticism that you're referring to. I think right? so. Now, uh, when I was uh, campaigning in 2016 across Britain, before the referendum, uh, against Brexit, therefore confusing all my friends and comrades in Britain, who used to say to me, but they treated you like a 
piece of dirt. And now you're asking us to stay in this thing called the European Union. Um, have you gone crazy? And they had a point, right? My answer was, Brussels is a democracy-free zone. It cannot be reformed. The European Union sucks. <laughs> and you have to stay in it in order to fight with us from within. Not to reform it gradually, but to take it over. Now, here is the disagreement. It's a genuine disagreement. Uh, allow me just a small parenthesis here. We of the left are absolutely fascinatingly, brilliantly capable of tearing each other apart, of creating gulags in which to incarcerate our comrades, um, of hating each other more than we hate the enemy. You know? Anybody who's watched the Life of Brian's opening sequence, you know, uh, in the contest between the Judean People's Front and the Liberation Front of Judea knows what I mean, you know, <laughs> right? We are fantastic. You know, Trump is unifying all the fascists in the world. The bankers are bailing each other out with your money. And we are killing each other. Eh? We're demonizing the other leftists. So let's not do this anymore. What do you think? Eh? But let's have a robust debate. And the only way to have a robust debate is to, to try to understand the arguments of the other side and agree or disagree, but have a, an interesting conversation as comrades. Okay, so, I recognize the view. I, I hate the European Union. I mean, I loathe it with a passion. I, I, I go to, I, the airplane arrives in Brussels, and I start clogging up within. I, I, you know, I, 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 get, I get a series of mini strokes. You had some unpleasant experiences with them, I hear. Yeah, more so than any of my critics <laughs> who accuse me of being a, 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 you know, a Europhile. Okay, but the left should be about not only creating a vision for the future and building the future, but also minimizing harm to the most vulnerable people. Now, let me tell you what's going to happen. Let's say that, you know, the standard line that uh, a very cruel God is one that uh, grants us our wishes. So imagine that we all wanted, we all agreed with my critics that we wanted to disintegrate the European Union because it was a neoliberal project. There's no doubt about that. It's begun as a cartel of heavy industry. Then they incorporated the auto industry. Then they cut into the deal the, uh, the awful large um, uh, uh, farm owners of France. Um, and then they incorporated financialization, and the whole thing became, you know, OPEC is nothing, is a, is a walk in the park compared to the European Union. No, no doubt about it. Let's say, though, that we win power, or we have a button, you know, we press a button, and the European Union goes. What will happen tomorrow morning? Are we going to have uh, uh, people's republics um, of France, of Germany, of Greece, with, where, you know, prosperity, shared prosperity and uh, equality flourish? Well, I'll tell you what's going to happen. Take this euro of ours, which, um, as you know, there is an indictment hanging over me in the Greek parliament for treason, for undermining the Greek national currency, which is the euro, according to the establishment. Go figure. Yeah? Take the, that currency. Imagine that it, that, that it dissolves tomorrow. What's going to happen? This is a rhetorical question. I'll answer. <laughs> uh, what's going to happen is... There's going to be a chasm, a, a, a fault line that develops down the River Rhine, separating France from Germany, and across the Alps. So the Germans are going to recreate their own currency, and the Deutschmark, maybe they will call it something else, 
And it will be the currency not only of Germany, but also of countries like Austria, the Netherlands, uh, Slovakia, Slovenia, um, all the way up to the Baltics, Lithuania, Estonia, and so on. Why? Because all those countries' industry is hardwired. It is completely enmeshed with the industrial manufacturing machinery. So that will be one currency area. North, East, Europe, Calvinist, and deflationary. Because believe you me, that, that part of the world has the greatest trade surplus of any part of the world anywhere. If you have a gigantic trade surplus and you have your own currency and you don't have the Greeks and the Italians pushing it down, it will go through the roof. The moment it starts going through the roof, the, the, the exports of that industrial megalith are going to go down, exports to the United States, exports to, to I mean, Trump is going to use it as a fantastic opportunity to, to hit upon them with even more protectionism than ever before. And that part of Germanic Europe is going to face a fantastic increase in unemployment. So people who are now precariously employed will become completely unemployed. Uh, and the rest of the European Union, you know, the Latin part, I don't know about Greece, who knows about Greece, but you know, Italy, Spain, Portugal, France, are going to experience a fantastic combination of both inflation and unemployment because their currency is going to devalue, prices will go up, investment is already very low, this environment in which, uh, that, that I'm describing is going to be one of great permanent crisis, so we're going to have a deflationary Germanic area and a stagflationary rest of Europe. You do not want, friends, to live in that kind of world, because the only people who are going to benefit from that are the fascists. It is not going to be Jean-Luc Mélenchon, me, you, uh, the progressives, you know, my friend Luigi the Magistris in Napoli. It will not be the forces of the left. We are going to be in the gulag. It is really very simple. So, to put it simply, <laughs> recall when the trades unions movement started um, becoming significant in Britain, in France, in the United States, it was in, in the 19th century. Now, what was the state back then? Was it reformable? No. It was a series of institutions created by an oligarchic bourgeoisie, the purpose of which was to make sure that the people, the riffraff, the hoi polloi, as you might say, using a Greek term here in America, would never go anywhere near the levers of power. The American Constitution, read the Federalist Papers, I'm sure you have read them, was created so as to ensure that the people never had the power, that they were consulted to feel good about it, but that the oligarchy would continue to rule. Now, we always knew that as the left. Why have we forgotten this about the European Union? What is so different about the European Union? It was created by an oligarchy, the purpose of which was to have a democracy-free zone. But the European Investment Bank is an instrument that a socialist Europe will need. And if we didn't have it, we should have created it. The European Stability Mechanism, it was a bailout, toxic fund, the purpose of which was to enslave the Greek people, the Portuguese people, the Irish people. Well, we can take it over and put it to different uses. We can turn it into an anti-poverty fighting fund. Why have we lost the ambition to take over the instruments of the bourgeoisie at the pan-European level, at the international level? I want to take over the IMF. Why not take over the IMF? to fund the green international new deal that this planet requires to stop climate change. 
Let's have some ambition, ambition here. And I do not want to wake up in the morning with the ambition of creating the People's Republic of Greece with very tall borders around me, keeping everybody else, okay, solving all the problems in my own country, and who gives a damn about the Italians? A, uh, a follow-up question on that. <laughs> Whatever one's take on the Europe debate within the European left, it seems that one core problem is that it's not going to be decisively solved anytime soon one way or the other. So how can the left maintain some sort of unity by, while differing on such a fundamental question? Or is it basically an insurmountable fault line? Oh, no, no, it's not insurmountable. It can be overcome, but we have to do politics differently. And what I mean by that is this. How do leftists forge coalitions and plan elections? I'll tell you how. It's a very sad answer. They get around the table, people who don't really like each other very much, which is okay, uh, and they say, okay, now we, each one of us is a dead loss, we're doing really badly. But if we get together and we create what I call a Frankenstein coalition, we take dead parts of the dead left and we stitch them up together, okay? <laughs> then if we are all together, we have many of these dead organs together, maybe something will come into life. It never does. <laughs> that is the old style of doing politics. I'm not interested in that. I, I lose the will to live. I will not do that. I prefer to become, you know, whatever, um, a farmer in Egina. No, that's not true. The idiocy of rural life does not become me. Anyway, so um, what is the alternative? New style politics. What we've been trying to do at DiEM25 in, in, in Europe, and with the European Spring, which is our electoral wing, we're doing something that has never been tried before. We say to everyone, look, let's identify the four, three, four, five realms where people are suffering. Public debt, which is, causing, which is always the excuse for austerity. Yeah? Uh, private debt, people not being able to repay their mortgages, their personal card, uh, loans, credit cards. Poverty and the dearth of investment in green technologies, green energy, green transport, the green transition more generally. And these are the four main things. You can add migration as, a, as an add-on if you want, because I, I personally think that if you solve all the other things, people will forget that there is a migration problem. We will just open their borders and say, come in. Yeah? That's my view. But we can add the fifth if you want migration. And sit down and have a discussion about this. How about that? Instead of arguing uh, and you know, hating each other as to whether we want to take over the European Union or disintegrate the European Union or whether we want Lexit or Brexit or whatever. Let's sit down and ask ourselves how we're going to solve these four problems. Um, let's begin with Europe and then bring in Africa, bring in the United States. But let's discuss what needs to be done. And then if, if we agree on that, then, then off we go. But we do not go to the Voters out there, on the basis of a Frankenstein program, because the voters have had enough of Frankenstein programs from the left. They've had enough of the lowest common denominator. You know, I'm, uh, our movement is running now in 10, 11 countries in Europe, and I am going to be a candidate for the European Parliament in Germany. Because this is how we do disruptive politics. <laughs> to symbolize that there is no 
conflict between Greece and Germany. There's no conflict between North and South. There's conflict between progressives and reactionaries. It's really very simple. And I'm going to run in the Greek national election and in the German European Parliament election. Okay? Symbolizing that the old way of doing politics is... And we are going to run with the same program about these four crises in every country. The same manifesto. The same... We've worked for two and a half years on it. Uh, and what we're saying to our other... To, to, to our comrades on the left that are not with us is come and discuss with us. Tell us where we are wrong. And if you... This, this program of ours is not cast in stone. Uh, nothing is uh, perfect. Um, tell us where we're wrong. And let's have this conversation. This is something the left is not very good at. So once in the EU Parliament, you anticipate uh, being in coalition of some sort with lists like the Party of the European Left? Look, they are my friends. They are my colleagues. I love them <laughs> and hate them, like you do with family, right? Um, but, but we, okay, look, let me... Let me this, this is going to be a podcast about that, but don't play this now. Of course, of course you will. Now, take the Linke. Okay? They are our soulmates. The problem is that the Linke is so divided amongst themselves. Okay? You have one faction that is completely Europeanist like we are, internationalist, uh, who wants to see the borders disappear, who wants one solution for public debt and so on everywhere, uh, who wants us to, at long last, tear up that scandalous treaty between the European Union and the president of Turkey, which effectively bribes the president of Turkey in order to allow Europe to violate international law on refugees. So we agree with them. The other faction, though, within the link, eh, completely disagree. They are lexiteers. They, they have legitimate arguments, but they disagree completely. So what happens? For those two factions to appear in front of the German voters in May 2019 with a common program, the common program must be the lowest common denominator. In other words, it must be completely meaningless. Because if you disagree on basic things, the only way you can agree on, is on the co a common text, if, if the common text doesn't say anything except wishful thinking. Yeah? And then we wonder why it is that the left, that should be benefiting magnificently as a result of the 2008 crisis that only the Marxist left could predict, is the only political force which, together with the Social Democrats, is sinking without a trace. So this is what we're saying. Program. Let's have a programmatic discussion, a programmatic agreement, and run on the basis of that, not on the basis of how we're going to distribute the spoils of victory, the limousines, the offices, and the funds of the European Union. Um, Fernando, um, I want to ask you about what the Brazilian left in general and the PT in particular needs to do to fight itself out of this very difficult and rather terrifying situation that it finds itself in right now. Recently, there's been a lot of discussion in Brazil about a statement made by the rapper Manu Brown. Uh, Manu Brown? Am I saying it right? Not, sorry. <laughs> Manu Brown? Is that right? Closer? <laughs> My Portuguese is non-existent. Sorry. Um, he, he said, quote, if we are the party of the workers, we need to know what the people want. If we don't know, go back to the base and find out. And Lula, I believe, just wrote a letter referencing the statement. What does going back to the base and asking the people what they want look like in practice? And do you agree that that's what the PT needs to do and the left in general? 
Well, Bano Brown said to me uh, in the same stage. Ah, uh, you were there. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I was there. And I, I agreed to him immediately because I, I think Pete one uh, need, needs to go uh, to the basis uh, because we are facing uh, a new phenomenon in the periphery of the metropolitan areas, which is the new Pentecostalism. Uh, now, it's more than 30% of our society. It's too much. Uh, and let me try to explain the structure of Brazilian society, because it's hard to understand. We are a hybrid of a system of castes and with meritocracy. Th this is funny, because... Uh, it's in a way you can move up and down as an individual, but the case itself cannot get closer one another at all. So the structure is frozen. Nobody wants to touch the, the structure, but for one person or another, it's okay. Pelé, it's okay. Lula, it's okay. Mano Brown, it's okay. But the black people, no. The women? Let, let us see. It's, uh, it's a hybrid. And the theology of prosperity deals with that very easily. Very easily. Because this uh, doctrine doesn't touch the, the structure of the society. Uh, they can live together without any problem. So it's possible for a conservative wing to support a right a far right government without any crisis that's why uh, liberalism now neo liberalism is compatible in brazil with fundamentalism and as a matter of fact the neo liberalism in brazil uh, uh, they need uh, a spiritual complement. You know the, the book of Weber, uh, the Protestant ethics and the spirit of capitalism. We have to wrote, uh, write a, a new book in Brazil, the new Pentecostal ethics and the spirit of new liberalism. That's the point. Because that's why Bolsonaro, he can give up this agenda, the moral agenda. Uh, because they don't want people to pay attention on the uh, economics anymore. That's the point. So we have to find a way. Uh, PT uh, emerged in a, in a scenario where uh, the Catholic Church was very conservative and they helped them to change things in the Catholic world. We have to do the same now because we can give up 30% of the population and part of them are very poor or lower middle class. So we have to talk to them and to... Uh, to challenge the, the, his, uh, the mentality of that. So uh, we, not, uh, we cannot uh, take for granted 
they are uh, not ours anymore. So uh, this is the point. Another issue is that finance is always the problem. Every problem has to do with finance, always. In Europe, in Europe is uh, uh, the fixed exchange rate is a trap. There's two ways to re, uh, deconstruct the trap. A nationalist way and a progressive, progressive way. That's why the center is uh, being empty. Because there's no way to, to, to defend the status quo. You have to move. And the left have, uh, has to move. If we only uh, take a, a, a resistant uh, approach, we will fail. It's impossible to resist only. We have to resist, but to go forward. Uh, a follow-up question on that. How... What, what does reconnecting with the base look like, and how was it that the PT lost connection somewhat with its base? I think it was shortly after you became mayor of Sao Paulo. In 2013, there were the, this massive protests against bus fare hikes. And in retrospect, they sort of played out to the advantage of the right. But those were the sorts of social movements that the PT in its earlier years would have been energized by rather than, than uh, threatened by. How did, that, how did that play out the way it did? In 2013, the, in, the first in the very beginning of the protest, the riots has to do with the bus fare. But just for one week, after that, the right-wing protesters got the streets and uh, expelled the, the first movement, the, uh, the, the protesters uh, who, who began the, the, the movement. So uh, in that situation, we, be, we begin to, 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 to see uh, this new wave, this new conservative way. In, in just one week, everything changes in Brazil. The support for Dilma uh, collapsed to half in 30 days. In 30 days. And it has nothing to do with federal government, the bus fare in, in Sao Paulo. So uh, the social media was used there as now in the, the, the last election. That's another point. We don't know how to deal with social media. We don't do fake news. We don't pay for shoots when they the massive uh, spreading of fake news, uh, as though we, we had in Brazil. It's, it's something new. And there's money behind that. It's impossible to do without money. So we have to pay attention on that. Huh? And the cartels also, because we, in Brazil, we just have Fox News. We don't have another thing. It's four families that hold the whole system and a Fox News family. <laughs> uh, and the banks are another cartel. The interest rate in Brazil, it's much higher than any, anywhere because of the cartel. So we have to think about, as Varoufakis said, 
the stocks and not the flows, <laughs> the wealth and not in, the income. That's the point. The property and not the wage. One of the most critical threats posed by the far right that's, I think, far too little discussed is around the, the climate crisis. In Brazil, obviously, Bolsonaro is going to be a major ally of the Ruralista caucus, these agribusiness uh, men who want to level the Amazon. In Europe, the AFD doesn't believe in the scientific consensus on on climate change. How does the left create social solidarity around the climate crisis, which is an issue that's often framed as intention with the development needs of a country like Brazil. I know in uh, as mayor of Sao Paulo, you wanted to pursue policies that combined uh, urban redistribution and combating climate change. So that's a question for, for both of you. Of Sao Paulo. Well, the mayor of the, the, the Sao Paulo part, but the general part is for both of you. <laughs> uh, believe me, Sao Paulo has two reservations for indigenous people. The metropolitan area of Sao Paulo, during my administration, we fixed that. Uh, combining with the most ambitious uh, program of uh, public transportation and so on. So it's possible to make a difference in the city, in the countryside. Uh, thinking about environmental issues. Uh, Bolsonaro uh, not only uh, gave up hosting the new, the, the next climate change meeting in Brazil, but he announced he will not, uh, he will not uh, uh, fix any reservation anymore. One square millimeter, he said. Because he wants the uh, indigenous people to leave the forest frame and live with us. Because he said they deserve to be <laughs> like us. They are inferior line right now, but they are improving. That's, the, that's his point. He, I'm not sure if he's joking or not. He, he said in the reservation they live like in a zoo, like animals. So it's it's a mess in Brazil right now. Upside down, everything we thought about uh, the constitution. Uh, and uh, why uh, he's doing so? Because uh, he, want, he wants to expand uh, the area for agribusiness. And we don't need new land for that. That's the point, because there are land enough in the hands of agribusiness. They are speculating with, hand, with land. L land and money are, <laughs> are two problems in the world. Land and money. In urban areas also, people are, are being spelling from the center of the urban areas. The gentrification are... Uh, the same in uh, the, the whole uh, world because of the cost of land. In the countryside, it's the same. So they are specul speculating with land as a, as a, a, a wealth act, uh, at, uh, as wealth, 
not as uh, something to to be at disposal of the community to produce something. That's the point. Well, the class war is destroying the planet. And it is important to simply point it out. Uh, you know, it doesn't take a lot to create a coalition of uh, the majority uh, and ecology. Uh, it is important to point out the connections, the interconnectedness. I'll give you a small example from Greece, since you know, I haven't spoken much about Greece. Uh, in 2015, when we won government, and we were still a radical party, uh, it lasted five months, <laughs> Uh, but nevertheless, we won with a clearly ecological agenda, an agenda for debt restructuring, both private and public, for alleviating the ill effects, the detrimental effects uh, upon the Greek population of austerity, and an ecological agenda. The majority of the Greeks in January 2015, that's not a century ago, it's only a few years ago, uh, were determined to leave fossil fuels on the ground when we, the right was telling us that they had discovered massive quantities of um, oil and gas reserves in the eastern Mediterranean, uh, which we were going to exploit supposedly together with Mr. Netanyahu against the other peoples of the area, like the Turks, like the Palestinians, and so on. Uh, we of the left were saying absolutely no. Um, we were always bringing up, quite correctly, the oil curse, the resources curse, the geopolitical destabilization that that would bring, uh, the fact that it would destroy the planet, and in the end it wouldn't do anything to serve the interests of the many. Yeah. So we were rejecting that. Uh, a few months later, the creditors uh, crushed our government. Uh, the government itself over overthrew itself. This is the first time in history when a government overthrows a people immediately after the referendum, if you remember, in July 2015. Uh, and then what happens? The same government, once it has accepted austerity, uh, once it has surrendered to the class war waged by creditors on the one hand and the local Greek oligarchy against the people of Greece, immediately adopted the mantra that ah, a bankrupt nation cannot afford the luxury of being green. And now the same government is digging in the Eastern Mediterranean with Mr. Netanyahu, doing exactly what the right was doing. So it connects, but we need to connect the, the dots as the left. We need to overcome the tendency of the ecological movement to be self-satisfied uh, and to confine itself into a narrow band of privileged white Westerners uh, who can be as pure um, as it takes in terms of their policies. And, you know, and if you say to them, okay, and how are we going to put food on the table of the vast majority, they don't give a damn. So this is the great failure of the ecological movement. The failure of the left is to take into consideration seriously the importance of um, uh, prosperity without physical growth, and the failure of the ecological movement is to take into consideration that, yes, we all cry our hearts out over the polar bears, but the fact that you know tens of thousands of children die of malnutrition is also something that we should shed a few tears about. So connecting those two, and you know, the bad guys connect it. They realize that they need to squeeze the living daylights out of the majority while extracting fossil fuels from the 
in order to be able to extract, you know, to do fracking in the middle of Europe, in the middle of the suburbs of LA, as I found out today, which I was astonished by, yeah, they need to squeeze the, the population in order to destroy the planet. Uh, and we need to show, and it's not too difficult to argue that the interests of the many and the interests of the planet are aligned. For the last question before we go to Q&A, I want to turn to the U.S. since we're here. Uh, obviously, Trump is in the White House, so from that perspective, things seem pretty bleak. But it's really odd, and I was mentioning this earlier, growing, growing up and coming of age as, the, as a leftist, I was all, always looking to Europe and Latin America for inspiration and thinking that things seem pretty hopeless in the U.S. But right now, in many ways, the most energized and ascendant parts of the left seem to be, weirdly enough, in the U.S. and U.K. So I wonder what for the left in Brazil and in Europe, if we do manage to grow in power here, as I hope we do, and ultimately take power, what sort of transformations should we be attempting to accomplish here that will be of the greatest benefit to the left in Europe and Latin America? I'm not sure if you are uh, two years ahead or behind us. Uh, that's the point. And, uh, but yes. <laughs> 30, 38 uh, years ago, PT uh, taught the world how to do in many ways, in many ways. PT is something amazing because uh, a huge agreement between all the left, almost all the leftists in Brazil, but the communists, uh, to bring something new uh, into place. Uh, and we, we won after. PT was founded in 1980, 2002, we won. And we won, and we won four times. So it's too much for a leftist party. Now we have, now we have to have uh, uh, humility, uh, humility? Mm -hmm. humility to learn from abroad and to share, uh, to share our, our experience, but to, got, to get inspiration from abroad, from U.S., from U.K., from Europe, uh, whatever. Uh, we, we need to... Uh, I'm sure that it's not possible to, to face this challenge locally. The issue is not a local issue anymore. It won't be local anymore. Because environmental issue is uh, a civil rights issue. It's, it's impossible to, to deal... And this wave uh, has been articulated uh, by finance sector in the world, for oil sector. I'm not sure what's behind, but there's something behind that has been articulated. So we have to articulate ourselves, in internationally speaking. That's why uh, the progressive international is important, the EN25 is important, 
everything is that moves in the right direction is important for us. So I'm here because of that. I went to Vermont because of that. I go to I I will go to Europe next year uh, because of that. And I'm very worried about the Western Europe uh, next uh, year uh, because of uh, I have just said the center in the Europe has no no chance at all. In few years, there's no space for for the center or the nationalist wave or the federalists or something progressive in another way will take place and rule Europe. So we we have to we have to share, uh, we have to inspire each other. Uh, I believe in in a international movement. You asked the question: Why is it that the United States and the United Kingdom are leading the a wave, if you want, of uh, uh, hope? whereas uh, the rest of the world, especially Europe, is not. Uh, whereas upon a time, once upon a time, it was you know, Swedish social democracy, uh, the indignados in Spain, Central American revolutionaries. Central American revolutionaries, even liberation theology and all that. that, that well, allow me to close the way I started um, answering your questions. Remember, I made the comparison with 1929. Uh, if you think about it, and if you... If, the, if my theory holds water that 2008 was our generation's 1929, what happened after 1929? Europe descended into a darkness that only war um, disturbed. It was in the United States that um, the um, seeds of the New Deal were sown, and it was in the United Kingdom that the Labour Party... Uh, began to respond to the threat of fascism uh, and the xenophobia that uh, Mosley and the conservatives were creating, and of course under Chamberlain, and of course it was the Second World War that effectively created uh, a telling discontinuity. Now history never repeats itself, but it rhymes, as we know, as we know, and what we are having again is again the UK and the US after our generation's 1929, producing a movement capable of uh, impeding the progress of the nationalist international, of the new fascist, of the new um, uh, Trumpian forces. However, it's, remember, it's important to remember that history does not repeat itself. Maybe it does as a farce, maybe as a tragedy. Uh, you're not there. You, had, you have not reached your 1933 moment. You're still under Trump. You have a Democratic Party, which uh, the establishment of, of which would much rather see Mr. Trump being, be re-elected than allow Bernie Sanders to proceed. This is why I said to Bernie Sanders yesterday when we were sitting around the table, you better run because you have a moral and political duty to do this. We need to maintain this momentum in this country, wherever it exists. We need, as you said, humbly to revisit our failures in Brazil, in Greece, in Spain. But above all else, 
we need to do that, which we did not do in the 1930s, so I'll repeat myself, we need a progressive international that is a common, common home, but also the source of a common program for us all. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond, and you can support it on patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China by Leda Hong Fincher. On the eve of International Women's Day in 2015, the Chinese government arrested five feminist activists and jailed them for 37 days. The Feminist Five became a global cause celeb, with Hillary Clinton speaking out on their behalf, and activists inundating social media with hashtag Free the Five messages. But the five are only symbols of a much larger feminist movement of civil rights lawyers, labor activists, performance artists, and online warriors, prompting an unprecedented awakening among China's educated urban women. In Betraying Big Brother, journalist and scholar Leda Hong Fincher argues that the popular, broad-based movement poses the greatest challenge to China's authoritarian regime today. Through interviews with the Feminist Five and other leading Chinese activists, Hong Fincher illuminates both the difficulties they face and their joy of betraying Big Brother, as one of the Feminist Five wrote of the defiance she felt during her detention. Tracing the rise of a new feminist consciousness now finding expression through the Me Too movement, and describing how the communist regime has suppressed the history of its own feminist struggles, Betraying Big Brother is a story of how the movement against patriarchy could reconfigure China and the world. Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China by Leda Hong Fincher, out now from Verso Books. There's the microphone. Uh, I'm going to keep questions at 30 seconds, Max, and I will cut you off. So please make your way to the mic if you would like to ask a question. Uh, You mentioned war. My concern for the last three years since I've been on the streets as an activist for Brazil has been, I think they're trying to make Latin America the new Middle East. Question. To all of you. They're trying to make war in Latin America. The United States has donated tanks to Brazil, um, and so on and so forth. Uh, the situation is the situation is dangerous because we have a lot of oil in Latin America right now, with which is a, an ingredient of, of that. Uh, and they are pushing Brazil to adopt a hostile approach to Venezuela, towards Venezuela. So it's dangerous. I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure uh, about the the what's behind the, this this movement. If it's just a a tricky way to to do politics. But uh, you have a point. We have a point. 
Hello. Um, thank you for the very enlightening conversation. Um, I was wondering, uh, you said that we have to sort of democratically take over these institutions. And I'm just wondering if you really think that it's actually possible to do that and there are mechanisms not built in place to keep from a takeover like that happening, which we are not aware of, but which may pop up on news here and there, right? Um, especially if the goal is to take over wealth uh, and, not, uh, and, and not income. Are they gonna really let you take over wealth? And are we really gonna be able to do it without populism? Well, there's no way we're going to do it with populism because populism is only going to, to bring the Salvinis into power, not you and me. Uh, now, your question is not a question of whether democratization is possible, but I think your question is about what do I mean by democratization and what is that process? Huh? Does it mean, for instance, uh, never bending the rules that the establishment sets for us? No, it doesn't. We have to bend their rules. Look, my definition of democracy is not that of the Democratic Party of the United States. My definition of democracy is that, that Aristotle, an enemy of democracy, gave. And let me remind you what his definition was. Rule by the poor, because by the definition, the poor are in the majority. Now, this kind of democratization, I think we can agree on. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, thank you for the very interesting talk. Um, since we're trying to develop a lexicon for an international left, I wanted to go back to your point about populism. And I was wondering, because I recently heard Chantal Mouffe speak, and I found her very interesting. And I was wondering if your aversion to the word populism is just a semantic difference from her um, theories, or if you are more in disagreement with her more general theories on left-wing populism and the potential it has. We must never underestimate the importance of words. So it's, it's not just a semantic difference. There's no such thing as just a semantic difference. Semantic differences are substantial differences, you know. Anybody who believes in the word of Noam Chomsky, for instance, would agree with this, right? Look, allow, we need to define our terms. So I will define my terms, and I will allow, allow Chantal to define her terms. My terms are really very simple. I define a populist as one who takes advantage of the discontent of the people, of the majority. You can think of people like that, especially in this country. Who harnesses their anger and their outrage. Who distorts their own understanding of their own circumstances in a way that turbocharges that anger and then turns, turns it against others against women, against gays, against the somehow differently colored, huh? uh, the foreign, and you know, the cultural Marxist, even though they have no idea what they're talking about. Okay? Uh, and then they take that energy from the republic, they look at them in the eye, and they offer them protection like a mafioso does, uh, Mussolini, Trump, Bolsonaro, and so on and so forth. Then they usurp power on the basis of this energy that they have beaten up into a lover, and they turn their power against the very people that gave it to them. Now, that is for me populism. Yeah? 
Uh, and I don't believe you can be left-wing and populist in that sense. Now, what does it mean to be... You see, I'm completely in favor of being popular. Who doesn't want to be popular? I mean, we need to be popular as a left. But there's a profound difference between a demagogue who uses the anger of the many in order to enslave them and someone who uses whatever political capital she has or he has in order to give voice to the people so that they can govern for themselves. The populists do not want you to govern for yourself. They want you to enable them to govern on their behalf while they are turning their authority against your interests. Congratulations in starting the Progressive International. And I wanted to, I think it's very important to remember that the giant social media corporation like Facebook and WhatsApp, they not only helped these awful people get into power, they made it possible for it to happen, right? So I, I, I think we need to sue Facebook. I want to sue Facebook. I want to sue WhatsApp. We need resources to fight back right now and fight strongly. So um, I want to know if, do you want to help me? <laughs> no, I'm not going to help you sue them because I don't believe in a justice system. But what I would like us to do is to nationalize them and internationalize them and socialize them. And I want their shares to go to an international wealth fund. I'm a fifth-year PhD student and I'm writing a dissertation on democracy promotion policy of the European Union and the United States in post-Soviet region. In my fifth, fifth year, I am still struggling to understand the European institutions, who is responsible for what, who is making decisions, why several departments are responsible for one policy. So I wonder whether you have a institutional reform plan for the European Union if you got elected and how it looks like approximately. Thank you. Well, absolutely. We have nothing else because, you know, this is, this is the number one um, concern of DiEM25. How to take over those institutions and put them to good use. Some of those institutions do very good, very, very good work. Very good work. But the European Union was designed to be opaque. It was designed as a democracy-free zone. The lack of transparency is not an accident. It's not a failure. It's a design feature of it. And things are far worse than what you think. Far, far worse. Right? There's bad news and there's worse news. The bad news is that you're right. The worst news is that you have no idea how right you are. Yeah? <laughs> and what do I mean by that? I was in meetings of ministers of finance. Crucial decisions were being made that affected the life of, of millions of people. The ministers of finance had no clue what it was that they were agreeing on. It was all prepared by a cabinet of apparatchiks working under us in the shadows of the building, and not, even only, and not just them, but also particular individuals connected to particular vested interests, both of particular governments and multinationals, and banks, to be precise. This whole thing was presented as a series of inexorable steps towards a predetermined Hegelian you know, ideal. 
Every single finance minister felt too small to understand what on earth was going on. And do you know, we were having meetings, some of them lasting 10 hours, of which the first one and a half was a series of monologues by each one of us, not a discussion, series of monologues that were neither here nor there. I mean, it was just a waste of breath. Yeah? It was a little bit, I called it the Swedish national anthem routine. So I felt when I was presenting, I was doing my best to present my best case. But I was looking at the faces of people in there. It was whether I was saying what I was saying or singing the Swedish national anthem was exactly the same thing. Okay? And that was one and a half hours. And the rest, the other eight and a half hours, we were arguing over the phrasing of the communique, of what would go out in the media, not a decision. We, would, we could argue for one word for two hours whether it would be the updated program or the amended program. Two hours discussion about that. Meanwhile, the train wreck that is the European Union was moving and destroying people's lives, creating deflationary forces in Germany, depression in Greece and in Portugal, and effectively begetting the political monsters that now are threatening not so much to win power in Europe. They don't need to win an office. The, the, the terrible thing about fascists is that they can dictate the agenda even if they don't win because they shift the political center towards the fascist right. So this is, this is the tragedy. And so what do we do about it? Okay, this is a very long discussion, but allow me just to, for brevity uh, to come up with a really very simple proposal, which is the proposal of DiEM25, the first proposal we came up with in February 2016. Live streaming all the meetings. Every single meeting. If you are making decisions on behalf of the many, why do you do it behind the backs of the many? So, you know, how about live streaming every Euro working group meeting, every Euro group meeting, every ECOFIN meeting, and every European Union Council meeting? So, be, because then they will go behind the corridors and discuss. Let them go behind the corridors. But when it comes to the chamber in there where the decision is made, I want, as a citizen, to see and to hear with my own eyes and ears what is being said on my behalf by my representatives. So, yeah, my question is for Haddad, um, but it's related to what everybody talked about tonight. Uh, I love this idea of creating an international front to unite the left. And the far right in Brazil is extremely organized. They have thousands of WhatsApp groups, Facebook groups. So my question is more in the line with Mondo Brown. Uh, how can we go back to the base? How can we become organized? What can we do? on a daily basis to help, then uh, if you and PT have any proposal to unite us again. Thank you. Uh, I, uh, I just, uh, I would say that we want to go to the basis, but uh, we have to uh, find a way to go to the basis in some, with some other tools, not the same tools as in the 80s, because people changed a lot. And because of us. <laughs> Not only because of them, but because of us. We, for example, we had three million, uh, three million students in our universities. Now we have eight. So something changed in Brazil because we opened the doors of universities to black people, to poor people. Um, something changing their minds 
and we have to dialogue with this. Uh, sometimes when people in the periphery of the metropolitan area get uh, rich a little bit, a car, a motor, a motorcycle, uh, a house, uh, sometimes uh, their mind change. We have to dialogue with this because it's not... Uh, uh, Sometimes they 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 uh, they thank uh, uh, Lula. Sometimes they thank uh, they thank uh, them themselves. It's my hard job. Sometimes they thank God. So it it's a uh, it's something you you have to talk about. Maybe the three of them are right, PT, God, and themselves. But you have to talk. So it's not easy uh, to deal with this. The, the whole system changed a lot uh, in a way. Uh, the social media is another, another challenge because we don't know how to deal with social media, how to deal with fake news. We don't know. Huh? Uh, in America, I think you don't know here how to deal with uh, it's difficult because it's not it's opaque it's not transparent at all so you don't have the means you don't even control the the system to to see what happened behind so it's difficult and we we have a lot of people who who know uh, the system i'm not sure if they are right or left but maybe some of them, and they, they can help us to understand, not to, to, to make the, the same thing the right uh, wing does, because we don't want to be like them. We want to, to use the, these new tools differently. differently. So uh, we have to share experiences, we have to communicate uh, with each other, we have to be connected to face uh, this new situation. Can I can I can I disagree with you just a tiny sure. amount? We didn't disagree. Any, uh, we haven't disagreed about anything. At all, so, but it will be a, a, a nice disagreement. You see, look, we have to stop blaming technologies and the media. Um, when the message is powerful. We have used, in various places, including here, the Sanders campaign has done a remarkable job with social media when the message is powerful. When Bernie gets up and says, this is a poor country. It is the richest country in the world and one of the poorest countries in the world. And that, that is a shame. It penetrates. When Hillary Clinton gets up to speak, whatever she says, Donald Trump is going to do better than her on Twitter. Yeah? In Greece, in... June, July 2015, when we called the referendum, we had the most powerful institutions in the world that shut down the ATMs around the country to asphyxiate our people. Every television channel was portraying people like me as uh, uh, the devil incarnate. And there was a picture I, two days before the referendum. I saw main news, main news, main news of a major television channel. There happened to be, it was summer, we usually have forest fires. There was a scene of a forest fire, you know, flames. My 
photograph juxtaposed on it, and underneath, he's going to destroy the country. If you vote no, Armageddon, you know, that kind of thing. Every television channel, every radio station, every newspaper was saying that. The social media of the trolls of the right were inundating people. 62% voted no, because we had a powerful message. So let us not hide behind our failures and blaming technologies or the media. You know, Donald Trump went against the establishment and won. He went against the Fox News and won. Why? Because he had an ambition. We need to recover the ambition. So what do you need to do? I'm not saying join us because we're clever and progressive international is fantastic. It would be good if you did. But no, no, no. I think that you should take the spirit of the progressive international, the idea that, you know what, you're a student here at New School? No. Wherever you are, whatever it is that you're doing. You seem to be bothered about all these issues. Get 10 people together and try to create your own international Green New Deal. What would you like to see change in the world? And then send it to us and engage with us because we're doing the same thing. And we're doing this thing internationally. Uh, let's brainstorm on, on, on what needs to be done, on practical things that affect the planet, that affect the majority of people in the majority of countries, if not in all countries. And then the message is going to find its way of penetrating even the toughest, the thickest, and the tallest of walls. Um, I have a question as someone who's trying to gather those 10 people and like explain something, because I have friends who start jittering even when I lift something with my left hand. So uh, I have a question about the identity of the DM25 movement. Okay. It's an openly uh, identified movement as a leftist, and a leftist movement, a socialist movement. Sorry, excuse me. Um, and you don't refrain from identifying it as so. Um, but it's not also not a secret, as we talked about it here, that socialism is at a retreat, and the nationalist international uh, has the higher hand in appealing to the imaginations of the majority. So my question is, how do you negotiate um, constructing a narrative that would be that, that would resonate with the imaginations of the majority while maintaining an identity that is conducive to the ideological stance of the movement? And this is to perhaps sharpen that. So, Yanis, you said that... Um, we shouldn't be afraid of taking over the tools of the bourgeoisie. And I agree with you. But short of a revolution, usually our predecessors arrived at a settlement. And that settlement was social peace in exchange for some kind of welfare benefits that were attached to a growth model that was compatible with capital accumulation. The growth model that exists now in the Eurozone is really the most co in its mo co most coherent version, the German growth model. And that's an export surplus growth model, which is contingent on price stability, which is contingent on austerity, and that is fueled by labor peace in Germany, which you know very well is a reason for the barrier that the Greek and the rest of the peripheral European movements came across. What is the alternative growth model that you would propose that would unleash labor militancy in Germany so that voters there don't go toward AfD? What is the alternative growth model to export surplus? Because I don't think you're going to be able to take over the tools of the bourgeoisie otherwise.
great question. Look, on the question of identity of DiEM25, what we have been saying from the beginning, from our inaugural event in the heart of Europe, which is Berlin, was this. Very similar to what I said before, so I won't repeat myself for long. This is a moment in history when we have a historic duty to reach out across national borders and even across conventional political party division lines. What was the failure in the 1930s of the left? The left was divided between the communists and the social democrats, and also it failed to forge an alliance with anti-systemic progressive liberals uh, who ended up in the same concentration camp as the Marxists. So DiEM25 is uh, a minimalist progressive movement that seeks to provide the infrastructure for these different uh, political waves, if you want, currents, streams, to meet into a large river that um, provides hope. So we are working with ecologists, with anti-systemic liberals. I am not a liberal. I'm not an anti-systemic liberal. I declare myself a Marxist. But I think that unless we manage to create that kind of coalition so that we can have a minimum Green New Deal project for, and now I'm going to the second question, for presenting the German working class with an alternative that makes rational Kantian sense to them. <laughs> In the sense that, why do I mention Immanuel Kant? The categorical imperative. The German working class can understand very well that if I have a surplus with you, you have a deficit with me. And it makes absolutely no moral sense, or rational sense, for me to celebrate my surplus while demonizing your deficit. They can understand that. But they were in the clasps of a social democratic party that sold itself to the soul of the, German, of the Frankfurt banks for many years while imposing austerity on the German working class. And their choice was between that and the Christian Democratic Union that wanted to take away their welfare payments. That was the, the alternative they had. 50% of, of, of Germans are far worse off today than they were 15 years ago at the time when Germany is being swamped by cash. Never before in the history of Germany has there been so much money splashing around while at the same time, 55% of the population are worse off. So what is the alternative? We can, I don't have much time to, to indulge you with our European New Deal. The alternative is massive green investment in Germany that is going to be financed not through taxation, but through bond issues of the European Investment Bank that effectively soak up all this excess liquidity and put it to public purpose. That is as a first step. This is, if you want to address a German working class person who is not a radical, is not a Marxist, knows that he lives in a Germany that makes no sense and cannot be sustainable, that is the first step for taking them away from saving them, helping them escape from the mercantilist order liberal order in Germany. A uh, very quick question about Brazil. I work at the office with uh, most of my staff uh, are black women or 
black gay women. <laughs> and it's, uh, they are very, very afraid, but at the same time, they're hopeful because they mobilized themselves and got elected a collective of Congress women who is really, really powerful with grassroots organizations. So we have an idea, and I want to hear your opinion. We have the idea to take over the elections of 2020 and renew the political system bottom-up with the Vedores and Vedoras and um, with the... Um, Veriadores. Veriadores. How do you translate that? Uh, well, the council, the council. So I, I want to, to hear if it's a realistic idea to get young people everywhere, especially in the, in the black states, uh, to run, uh, make them not so afraid to run because uh, they are young and get them involved, especially uh, women from minorities. Well, actually, there's majorities there. And, and renew the system from there. Do you think that is a crazy idea, or do you think it's possible? And if it's possible, are you willing to help? Uh, it is a crazy idea, and it is possible. Because in Brazil, crazy ideas are possible right now. <laughs> but um, th there are room for novelty in Brazil, particularly in this field. Uh, Women are getting stronger in Brazil. Uh, it's, it's real. And I, I'm not uh, sure if you heard about the uh, Eli Não movement. Eli Não means not him movement in Brazil 10 days before the, uh, the first, the second round. No, the first round. The first round. Uh, and yeah, and uh, thank you for that. <laughs> and uh, uh, they distorted everything. The Bolsonaro's team uh, took picture from another place, another women, and spread the news in the WhatsApp. Uh, but it was very strong and very authentic. So uh, from uh, two years on, we have we will have uh, some space to to do something about. And I appreciate your idea. Fernando Hadaji and Yanis Varoufakis, thank you very much. Fernando Hadaji is the former mayor of Sao Paulo and was the Workers' Party's presidential candidate in 2016. Yanis Varoufakis is the former Greek finance minister and a co-founder of DiEM25, who is running for a seat in the European Parliament from Germany. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that the bourgeoisie must nestle everywhere, settle everywhere, establish connections everywhere, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, often twice, sometimes once. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Logan Dreher. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going. 
even a few bucks a month is huge.